Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Well, if you got your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 18 today, so you can open up and look along with us as we get in there. And before we start, uh, how many of you are old enough to remember actually seeing Mike Tyson box? Any of you remember seeing Mike Tyson? Uh, there is almost no one in my lifetime that I remember being more fearsome in the ring than Mike Tyson. Uh, now, if you heard him in a, speak in an interview, it didn't sound so terrifying, but if you saw him in the ring... Uh, the guy was, was a, a terror that intended to knock people out in the first round. And so I, I still remember one time we were with a bunch of guys and we paid like 139 bucks to watch a Mike Tyson fight and it was over in 93 seconds. And we were doing the math on like, what did we just pay per second to get to watch that fight? And it seemed like a wash. But Mike Tyson is one of the greatest quotes in all of sports. And you probably, uh, if you've been around very long, you probably know the one. I see some of you nod and you know exactly what I'm going to say. But one of the things Mike Tyson said, said was, everyone's got a plan until what? They get punched in the mouth. Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And apparently this originally came from his trainer and they were being asked as Mike Tyson was rolling through opponents and just knocking them all out. His, uh, his, his trainer was asked, he said, you know, all these other boxers are developing these plans. They're studying Mike Tyson. They're researching it. They're looking at tape and they're coming up with a plan to beat Mike Tyson. And the and said, well, yeah, that's all well and good, but you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Uh, can you relate to the saying? You understand how that works? Every, any of you ever had plans in life? And you're like, let me tell you how my life's going to go. And you chart everything and it all goes up and to the right. And you're just like, man, I know exactly how everything's going to work and I know how it's going to do. And all of a sudden you're like, life hits. And something changes. And uh, the fact is, most of us, like, we've got ideas about how we want life to work, but it rarely, reality rarely looks like our plans. And so we find ourselves planning and adjusting and, and charting a course and then reacting and then uh, kind of pulling ourselves up and going at it again and then trying to regain our balance when we get knocked off balance. And life tends to work a lot more like this than it does like this, doesn't it? Like it doesn't always go up and to the right. And what we're going to see today, I want us to talk about is what if trials and tests actually become the very things that make us stronger? What if the trials and the tests that we face actually become the things that make us stronger? When you look at, the, uh, at Acts 18, you get down to verse 23, there's a statement, and Paul uh, is, is talking about Paul, and it says, and Paul invested his time strengthening all the disciples. A disciple was, in that day, a disciple was a learner, or a student, or a pupil, or a follower, and in that day, they, they had these guys that were teachers, and these were the, the guys that were kind of the philosophers of the day, or the rabbis of the day, the teachers, that, that they were the ones that seemingly had all the wisdom, and people would want to go, and they'd want to learn from from these guys and they would become disciples of a specific teacher and there's a phrase in that day that says we walk in the dust of that they are to walk in the dust of their teacher 
And what that meant was you're going to follow behind and you just want to collect all the stuff from your teacher and so that you absorb it all onto your own person. So what is his becomes yours. And so you want to begin to think like your teacher. You want to begin to live like your teacher. You want to begin to see the world like your teacher. You want to begin to value what your teacher values and take on the character and the actions of your teacher. You want to become like him. And you know, the scriptures say that that Christians are to be followers or disciples of Jesus. That he's the one that we set before us, that we follow after, and we want to walk in the dust of his steps and collect everything that he is into our own person and begin to live like him. So in verse 23, when it says Paul was strengthening all the disciples, he was talking about people like you and me. That he was investing his whole life in trying to build up or strengthen, make stronger the people that were trying to follow Jesus. Uh, You know, there's something that's implied there, isn't it? which is that just because you become a follower of Jesus means you don't have it all together. It means there's still weaknesses that need to be strengthened. There's still knowledge that needs to be gained. There's still changes in us that need to take place. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about Acts 18, and it, it talks about how you and I can grow stronger as disciples of Jesus. And here's what I hope happens as we look through this. Hopefully you and I will begin to see that the church is a, is a group of friends who help us navigate the pace and pressure of life so that we grow spiritually stronger in whatever moment we tend to find ourselves. So whatever moment you're in right now, whether you're on an upswing or a downswing, whether you feel like, man, I'm on a high or I'm facing the most difficult hardship I've ever faced, that, that in the midst of that circumstance, that God's people would walk with you in the pace and pressure of life and help you realize that even through that moment, God can be strengthening you as a follower of Jesus. Sound good? Let's read in Acts 18. We're going to start, we're going to read the first 11 verses and we're going to jump down to verse 18. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade and stayed with them, he stayed with them and he worked, for they were both tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Now when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. And in his house was next his house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, also believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many Corinthians, hearing, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And down in verse 18. After this, Paul stayed on many, day, many days longer, and he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Chintre, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them, left them there, for he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. But when they asked him to stay for a period longer, he declined. Taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if the Lord wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. 
So this is uh, Acts 18, and kind of what, uh, what happens in this passage is there's a whole lot of ups and downs and kind of backs and forth, back and forth. But the bulk of it takes place in a town called Corinth. Uh, Corinth is an interesting place. It was a major kind of business and financial center that generated a lot of wealth. It was right on a major east-west and northwest, uh, north-south thoroughfare. So all kinds of stuff was passing through there. And at that crossroads, there was just a lot of interaction, a lot of business, uh, and a lot of wealth. Uh, as happens a lot of times in, in centers, where there's a lot of outside people coming through that are generating a lot of income. It became well known as a place of corruption, but also a place of licentiousness. Uh, one guy, one commentator I read said, uh, this was basically the Vegas of the, old, uh, of, the old, uh, of the Bible times. And so thought about it like Vegas. In fact, in classical Greek, uh, there was a word, uh, the word that um, meant, uh, is literally could be translated to Corinthianize, became a synonym for sexual fornication. So to Corinthianize, so named after that town, it was like saying everyone there would know like what happens in Vegas stays in, in Vegas. It was like what, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And so Corinth, to Corinthianize was basically to go and, and have a good time sexually, but maybe not in a very healthy way. And so Paul is now traveling to this town called Corinth. And as he steps into this town, he's living by himself. And it's interesting because Paul almost always traveled with companions. If you look uh, throughout all of Paul's writings, almost everywhere, he's traveling with Barnabas or he's traveling with Silas or Timothy. And he's got someone with him here. He actually had to leave Silas and Timothy behind uh, in order to take care of another ministry responsibility. And so he goes on to Corinth and he finds himself there all by himself. But look at verse two. What's the first thing it says Paul did when he got there? It says he went and he found a new friend named Aquila. Now, what was the situation with Aquila? Aquila and his wife Priscilla, it said, had, had literally had to flee out of Rome. And so they left Rome. And what we know is in around 80, 80 49, 80, 50, uh, the, Roma, the, the Christians and the Romans were, or Jews were conflicting in Rome. And Rome got tired of all these people that were agitating things. So they just said, let's just kick, the, kick all of them out. And so they, were, they forced everyone to leave Rome, and we actually can go back historically and see when this edict happened, and it was around 80, 49, or 50. And so now they had to leave, so they were displaced from home, they were displaced from their friends, they were displaced from their jobs and their income, and they go to a new town called Corinth, and they begin to start over their business of tent making there, and so they set up a new franchise in Corinth, and they're trying to get their business up and, up and coming. Now, isn't it interesting that when you see that Paul, whose family heritage was his tent makers and the way he'd grown up, although he'd not practiced tent making in a while, that was his history. And now this young couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who'd come from the opposite end of the world, Rome, they find themselves together and they just happen to meet. And they start up and begin a business together. This really is the first lesson I think we'll see today about growing stronger in the way of Jesus. The first is that interruptions can actually become blessings. Isn't it interesting that, that these two just happen to meet in a, in a town of over 500,000 people? Uh, the, these two people who both happen to be Christians, both happen to be tent makers, happen to bump into each other and happen to start a business. It, it almost seems too, too good to be true that it was all a mistake, that it was all happenstance. But their interruptions actually became something good. You notice that they invite Paul in. He begins to live with them. He stays with them. He works with them. And for 18 months, what we're going to see is that Paul begins to teach them the Bible and show them the way of Jesus and pour his life into them. And they watch his example day in and day out and learn how to live like Jesus from Paul. 
And so in the midst of this interruption, Paul's life was interrupted and had to go to Corinth. Their life was interrupted in Rome. They end up in Corinth. Those interruptions become a blessing of a lifelong friendship and a lifelong partnership and an opportunity for Paul to pour into them. Uh, isn't, that, isn't that cool the way God sometimes works in ways that maybe they didn't see it happening at the outset? Uh, now, when we see this seemingly bad interruption, what we see is that God uh, used it to bring about their training and their equipping. He used, uh, he, he's gonna send them out and actually use this to further his purposes in the church. Sometimes our circumstances coincide in ways that become incredible blessings for us. Now, what we see, in, uh, so in the, in the first half of Acts 18, as we work through the rest of this, I'm not gonna unpack all of that because I don't think we have time today. But what we begin to see is Paul uh, begins this ministry in the synagogue and then uh, kind of gets sideways with the, the Jewish leaders and says, well, if you won't listen to the gospel, I'm gonna take my ministry outside to the, uh, to the Gentiles. And it says he shakes the dust off his feet, meaning uh, you're, if you're not gonna listen, I can't help you. You're gonna be on your own. I'm innocent now. And I'm gonna go to someone that wants to listen to the word of God. And so he begins to move out. Uh, he, from there, he has to leave the synagogue. And again, he's interrupted. He has to start over. So he goes to a house next door to the synagogue who has, there just happens to be a believer in that synagogue that follows and trusts Jesus who lives just next door to the synagogue. And they begin a house church and they begin to invite that person's friends and that person's family and that person's coworkers and that person's neighbors. And this is when God's work really begins to take off in the town of Corinth was through that interruption, it actually becomes a blessing. And you see that the synagogue leader actually comes over and joins this new church that begins there. Now, eventually they're gonna accuse uh, Paul of, they're gonna kind of accuse him of uh, spiritual malpractice, try to take him to court. Uh, the rulers of the day are gonna say, look, this is just you guys squabbling over who's really the Messiah. I'm a Roman, I don't care, y'all figure it out, which actually in the long run works out to the advantage of the Christians. So again, that interruption God's going to turn around and use it as a blessing. Now, let me ask you this. When you just think about all the messiness of the stuff that happens in this passage, when you first became a Christian and when you first hear about, about God and you hear these things that, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, are those the kinds of things that in your mind you think are gonna happen? No, it isn't, do you? Uh, you think you're gonna go sit by, by a campfire and people are gonna bring you food and you're gonna sing Kumbaya and be happy the rest of your life. And you're gonna meet Mr. and Mrs. Perfect and you're gonna start a family and you're gonna immediately have kids except not too early but just when you wanted them. And you're only gonna do that when you have just enough money in order to afford kids and then everything's gonna work just the way they are and your kids are gonna come out and they're gonna come out like little angels that sing hallelujah and they sing your praises and they always honor mommy and daddy and they always do the right thing. And then you're gonna get a promotion so you can move to a bigger house and then you're gonna go on vacations to really cool places and your kids are gonna go and they're gonna love airplane rides and they're gonna love car rides and they're gonna sing happily and get along perfectly along the way and it's not the way life is. It works, does it? It's just life sometimes doesn't work the way we plan for it, the way we think it's going to. It's interesting when you look about Paul, just in this one chapter, he has to leave his friends behind for ministry reasons. He moves to a new city alone. He starts a new job as a tent maker. He's working two jobs to try to do the ministry on one hand and make a living on the other hand. And then his friends finally come and then he faces rejection, faces opposition. He gets kicked out of the synagogue. He starts over completely, begins to go well. He 
Um, then gets uh, accused of spiritual malpractice. He witnesses an innocent man being bit, beaten by an angry mob. He witnesses the injustice of rulers who don't do anything about it. He's relocated to another town, then to another town. He has to leave his friends behind again. Then he begins traveling as a homeless missionary. Does that sound like the life you wanted? And he started, like none of us would script that and say, man, I can't wait if that's what lies ahead. But God doesn't often remove the pressure of life from our, from our experience. He oftentimes works through the pressure of life to strengthen us through the experiences that we're going through. And that's the second uh, lesson in the way of Jesus. Uh, depression can sometimes be deepening. Uh, is that happy? Just sounds good. Like that's what you wanted to come to church here today. You know, it's interesting with this word depression. I, I, I wrestled with whether you use the word depression here or not. Um, but I almost wanted to use discouragement because we live in a, such a psychologized world and there's a lot of ideas of what that means and I don't want to minimize that at all because there is a very real clinical depression. And let me just say that, that I know dozens of people here even that have gone through that and experienced that at one level or another, so I'm not minimizing that at all. There are times you need professional counseling. There's times you need medication. We need to approach these things holistically that oftentimes when we face hard times, uh, that, that it's physical, it's emotional, it's mental, it's spiritual, and all those things are sort of colliding together to create difficulties in our life. So having said all of that and putting that out in the way of just... I want you to understand I know all that and I realize all that and I've experienced some of that. That um, Let me just say, there's also just some hardships in life that we face that create kind of a spiritual darkness in our lives, isn't there? Um, there, there are times where we go through downturns or we become downcast or we face a discouragement or despair. And so you could put a different word in there if you want to. Don't just read that through a certain lens. Uh, but there, there's a reality that sometimes we just get down. And that's why Paul, yeah, God seems to pull Paul aside in the midst of all the things he's going through. And it's almost like he gets a one-on-one -on -one counseling session with God himself, which I love, which says Paul has this vision and God sits down and talks with him. And what's the first thing God says to him? Hey, Paul, man, don't be afraid. Do you ever need to hear that in life? You're facing some challenge. You're facing a change. You're facing interruption you didn't expect. You're facing opposition. You're facing uh, someone that's coming at you in a way that you didn't anticipate it. You face someone that should be on your side. They've sort of turned against you. You face a struggle that sort of rubs up against you and you become fearful and discouraged. And do you know this phrase or this, this command, do not be afraid, shows up over and over in the Bible. And God says it to Paul because he knew he was downcast and fearful and it shows up over and over in the scriptures because God also knows that you and I sometimes get downcast and fearful. And we sometimes feel the same way. Now, it's surprising a little bit that Paul feels it in this moment because it seems like things are actually turning for the better. And it seems like when the pressure gets relieved and he's actually starting to see success in his ministry, he begins to all of a sudden feel this doubt that comes in. And what I would just say as, as, a, as a leader, that's sometimes when it hits you the most. Sometimes when you're under the hardship, you're just trying to squirm and find your way out of it. And so you're pulling yourself up and you're going. And when you actually begin to experience some success, there's this release. And what you find is, I actually don't have the joy. I'm too numb. I'm too tired. I'm too worn out. I'm too beat up to even relish the goodness of this moment. And you begin to feel the pressure. And when I read this passage, it just reads so true to life. In fact, we read this elsewhere in Paul's life. 
He writes a letter to the same town, Corinth. Later, Paul's going to write a letter back to Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, he says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You know, it's interesting to see a leader that says, and when I came, I was coming in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. That's not in all the leadership books I read. A lot of times you read a leadership book and it says, don't ever flinch like that. Um, you, you, should, you always need to have an answer. You're the one that goes up to the mountaintop and you bring down the message and you come down and is the invincible one that's leading the charge for everyone. And Paul says, man, when I came, I had Jesus and I had nothing else. And that's the one thing that I had. And later, Paul's gonna write in 2 Corinthians, another letter that he writes even later. And he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That sounds depressed, doesn't it? Paul just says, man, I got to a point where the hardship faced so hard that I just thought, Lord, I don't want to go on. I don't know how to move on. I think it's good to see that sometimes that happens. Friends, sometimes we create a pie in the sky vision of faith that says everything goes up and to the right, but that didn't come from the Bible. You understand that, right? We look at Bible, the greatest spiritual leader says, I came to you weak and in fear and trembling, having nothing but Jesus to hold on to. Paul says, sometimes life was so hard, I just thought, I don't want to go on. And yet what we're going to see is that the Lord was with him in the midst of that circumstance. When he took a downturn, the Lord met him there and the Lord came face to face with him and gave him a vision and says, says, Paul, don't be afraid for I'm with you. And he's going to point to some promises. Look at verses 9 and 10. The Lord said to Paul on one night of vision, he says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking to them, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. So God gives him first his presence and says, I'm with you. He's going to give him three promises that he can trust. The first promise is, I'm with you. Uh, you know, the scriptures say over and over, uh, the, this phrase, I am with you, it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, meaning I will always be by your side. Paul later is going to say in, in, in 2 Timothy, Paul comes and he says, you know, when I face this opposition, uh, th- this guy tried to take me out. He tried to take me down and I'm going to trust the Lord to repay him for what he did because what he did was evil. And at first, nobody, none of my friends stood by my side meaning I was all alone. He said, but the Lord stood by my side to strengthen me. The Lord's presence was there to build him up. God gives us a promise that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the first promise. The second, he says, no harm will come to you. What God's saying there is, look, I'm the sovereign one over all the circumstances of your life. Nothing happens to you that I'm not aware of and that I do not see. Uh, so he's saying that your life is not arbitrary. Your life is not chaos. Your life is not just willy-nilly circumstances running after one thing. Uh, but, but God is saying that I'm the sovereign one who has a plan and I will bring about your good. Maybe not immediately in the way you expect, but always ultimately in the way that you need it. It says, I will bring about your good. And lastly, he says, look, I've also got many friends in the city who will come to the faith. Meaning the city that you're so afraid of the people, there's many people in that city that are actually going to become your friends. They're going to become your brothers and your sisters and your family and the ones that support you. So you can let go of your fear. 
Each of these promises are basically reminders. And God gives them to Paul directly in a vision. Uh, but you know that each of those reminders basically come out of the Old Testament promises of Scripture. And so these were not new. These were things that God was actually reminding him of. And over and over, when God's people uh, or children despair, they're reminded of the presence of God and the promises of God. Essentially, that first one, just take it, I am with you. Uh, you go back, and I'll just give you a couple examples. First book of the Bible in Genesis, Abraham dies, and Isaac, his son, is left, and um, God comes to him and says, look, Isaac, I am the God of your father, Abraham. I'm, 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 the, I'm the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my, Abraham, my servant Abraham's sake, meaning the promises I gave to Abraham are yours as well. So he will be with him. Exodus 3, Moses at the burning bush. God's going to send him in to lead his people out of Egypt. What's God say? Who are, Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Meaning, dude, I'm one dude. He's the biggest nation on earth with the biggest army on earth. What am I going to do to, to go in and try to steal them? And what's God say to him? I am with you. And you can trust me. Joshua uh, Israelites have been promised this future and this land. And, and Joshua's there on the outskirts about to cross the Jordan and go in and try to conquer the land. And what is it God says to him in order to comfort Joshua? I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, be strong and courageous, Joshua. Do not be afraid. I'm with you. Jeremiah, he's beginning his ministry as this young leader and he's fearful. He says, look, don't let anyone look down on your, look down on your youth, but you're gonna say whatever it is I tell you to go say. Do not be afraid of them for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Do you see how often and how important this is? Friends, it's not just for people in the Bible that that command is given. It's given so that you and I can see that when we're afraid, what do you do with the fears that come in your life? And you go to the promises of God and say, God, you said you'd be with me. I'm gonna believe it to be true. I'm gonna trust the presence and the promise of God. In fact, that's where the strengthening power of the spiritual life comes from. Not from our strength, but from desperate dependence upon the presence of God and the promises of God. And whenever we, whenever we learn to trust God's presence and his promises, we always turn and invest in God's people and his purposes. And that's what we see in lesson three. Uh, verse, verse eight, uh, Paul says he stayed with them a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. It's one of the longest times Paul actually stays in one place and what we see is he's gonna invest. And so lesson three is delays can become opportunities. So Paul, dealing with this depression, dealing with everything that's going on, dealing with this need of the city, he begins to invest in the people there and he stays a full 18 months which is a lot longer than he stays in most cities. And there may be a couple reasons for this. One, the spiritual darkness of Corinth may have necessitated. He may have needed to walk them through more information and lead them in ways that they begin to understand the truth at a deeper level. It may also be that Paul was just in such a place that he needed the stability of friends and encouragement that he was gonna stay in a place. We don't really know. But what we see is the delay of him staying there opens up space for him to minister in that city and specifically minister to Priscilla and Aquila. Friends, can I encourage you when you face a delay in life not to waste your delay? And we all have delays that come our way. And maybe you feel you're stuck right now. Maybe you think you're on the sidelines. But maybe, maybe just maybe in the, in the midst of that delay, God wants to teach you something that you're gonna need later. Or God wants to produce something 
through that delay and create an opportunity that he's going to use that for good in terms of his purposes and what he wants to do. And so for 18 months, Priscilla and Aquila are there with Paul and he lives with them and he teaches them and pours the word of God in them and explains the word of God to them. So they don't just sit and soak, but they're not just consumers sort of listening to Paul's podcast occasionally. But they're coming in and they're opening up the word and going, Paul, give me more. Show me how this, how, how to understand the gospel. Show me what Jesus did. Show me what it means that I'm to take up my, my cross and deny myself and not just run after everything I want, but conform my life to look more like Christ. Show me what it looks like for me to be a disciple who doesn't just demand that God follows my rules, but I actually learn to follow the way God wants me to live. And I live in a way that honors Jesus and follows Jesus and looks like Jesus. And becomes light like Christ to my world around me. And so Paul gets to pour into them. And he's been connecting with them all this time. Uh, which is a really fascinating thing when you think of the delay that had gone on. Now, when you look down at verses eight and 18 and 19, Paul's going to leave Corinth and go elsewhere. Who goes with him? Priscilla and Aquila. Isn't that interesting that these people whose lives got interrupted and they both ended up in Corinth and they just happened to begin to work together and then uh, Paul ends up going through the situation has to stay there a little bit longer and now this relationship that's taking place isn't just going to happen for that little bit of time but Paul's poured into them he's trained them he's discipled them and now they're going to travel together and Paul wants them to come and go with them that's the fourth uh, lesson that I think we see out of this passage in the way of Jesus training can become a calling do you realize that, uh, that when we, that when scriptures say that we're to equip the saints, that we're not just equip the saints for your own happiness. It says you were to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Meaning that, that, that when, when we're discipled, when we're equipped, when we're trained, when we're built up, when we're, we're made strong, we're not just made strong so that we, so, because it's a self-help project or self-improvement project, but ultimately we're made strong for the sake of the purposes and the people of God. And so that 18 months where Priscilla and Aquila are being discipled and trained and built up, Paul's going to say, okay, now it's your turn to go and invest in the work of God. Meaning I, I don't pour myself in in order for you to, to just hoard all that. Uh, we don't have a cul-de-sac faith, right? Uh, faith didn't mean to come in and we just live and set up shop in the burbs and enjoy it for ourselves. But we're to take that and be conduits to give it away to someone else. That's what God ultimately does with this, uh, this couple. Now let's look down and skip down to verses we didn't read. I want to read down to verse 24. Let's watch the output of what happens. Because what's going to happen is Paul takes Priscilla and Aquila after building him up. And he goes to another city and they go to Ephesus. And they, they begin to work together and they do the ministry there together in Ephesus. And then Paul says, hey, I've got another place I need to go. But Priscilla and Aquila, I want you to actually stay here and you're gonna become the spiritual leaders of this new community, this new faith, because I've discipled you and now I want you to turn and disciple others. And Paul moves on and leaves them as the spiritual leaders behind in Ephesus. Now watch what happens in verse 24. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. And he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began speaking boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Um, isn't that a beautiful picture? Uh, what happens now? Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who had been on the learning end receiving from Paul, 
Now they're on the teaching and instructing this guy named Apollos. Now, Apollos is a pretty interesting guy. As you begin to think about him, he's a believer, but his teaching apparently is just a little bit off. Uh, it seems as though he's not teaching anything that's wrong, but maybe just his knowledge is incomplete. Maybe he just doesn't know everything there is to know yet. So Priscilla and Aquila team teach Apollos, and they begin sharing him the things that they've learned from Paul over the last 18 months. Um, do you ever know anyone that's incredibly spiritually gifted, uh, but they're just incomplete? That's what the picture we're meant to get of Apollos. You notice what it says about him. It says he was eloquent. He was learned, meaning he was educated in a, in a kind of a well-rounded world. He was a streetwise dude that understood a lot of information about the world. So he's a guy that on one hand, he knew the way the world worked and had a lot of information and training and teaching. On the other side, he was also, it says, competent in the scriptures, meaning he understood the gospel message and he could open up the Bible and say, let me tell you that Jesus was the Messiah and how God promised that he would send this one named Christ who would come. Now, apparently what he didn't know was a little bit about, he only knew the baptism of John, meaning he didn't really understand that the baptism of the Spirit had come and that the Holy Spirit was now living, up, living within us and through that, that the Holy Spirit would empower us and work to further our lives. And so he was not calling people to a, a, a baptism of, of new life in Christ through the Spirit. He was still calling them to a baptism of repentance in the way that John the Baptist did before Christ. And so they began and they sat down and they probably had a little Bible study and they pulled them aside and they began to have this conversation and help Apollos begin to grow. Now, Apollos was also this kind of on, kind of on fire preacher. He was emotionally compelling. It says, man, he was, he was uh, flourishing or fervent in the way he communicated things. And so this is a guy who's got incredibly gifts for ministry, but he just needed to be redirected a little bit and given a little bit more information. And isn't it interesting that Apollos, I mean, that Aquila and Priscilla show up about that time and how is it that they engage with him? Um, as gifted as he was, he still had more to learn. And it says, as he was speaking, notice what it says, Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And it takes a lot of humility to be instructed, doesn't it? Think about what this would look like for Priscilla and Aquila. You, you, you're coming alongside. Uh, think about this from your perspective. You're a, a small business owner. Uh, you've got your own life out there and you've been in the church and you've been discipled. Maybe you lead a small group, you do some ministry you're on a serve team at the church and uh, then you, you hear a guy that comes in, he's a guest preacher and man, he's killing it and everyone's responding and you're doing it. But then you realize like, man, I don't think this guy knows everything. I think he's still missing some stuff. Uh, would you have the boldness to do what Priscilla and Aquila do? And they go and they grab Apollos and they say, hey, dude, come here. We need to talk a little bit. And so there's some boldness to the way they do it. It's interesting because it switches. You know, earlier in this chapter, it calls, it says Aquila and Priscilla, so it names the man first and the woman later. Here it flips it and puts the woman first, Priscilla and then Aquila. Uh, a lot of people think it may mean that she actually had higher status uh, in terms of social structure, uh, but it may also be that she was the stronger one. It may also be that she was the more, uh, more, uh, the, the stronger teacher amongst them. And so in a teaching environment, that she may have been the one that actually drove it a little more, initiated with Apollos and brought him alongside and began to walk with him through these things. We don't really know, but it's interesting. It's, it seems to be intentional that Luke, the writer, flips it and calls her name first here. And he does that a little bit later. And we see that she seems to raise up as a leader within the church. Um, as you go through the book of Romans, we'll see more of that later. But uh, part of what I love here, friends, we need to learn how to do what they did. You notice they don't embarrass him. You notice they don't cause a stink online. Like they don't go, oh, 
oh, this guy didn't know everything and get on the computer and start like pounding away or get on their phones and just start like, oh, I'm gonna tweet this guy. Paul is screwed up. He didn't say it right. You know, he didn't know anything. This guy's an idiot. I know more than he does and I'm not even a preacher. Like they didn't, they didn't try that. What's it say? It says they took him aside gently. Um, they didn't do it publicly. They did it privately. They didn't do it for shame. They did it with patience. They did it to help him, not to hurt him. Uh, friends, sometimes we just need to chill out. You see that sometimes in our world? That we just see a guy and it's like he hasn't fully arrived. He's not yet Jesus. And so we think, well, that guy's meaningless. We need to throw him away. I love that that's not what you see in the scriptures. They come alongside him. They gently correct him. They begin to show him the way of God more accurately. And Apollos receives that, has the humility. And then they immediately turn around and they affirm him and they send him back out to go do the work. It's honestly what Jesus did with his disciples. He gathered his disciples, he trained them and they kept making mistakes and sometimes he had to say like, get thee behind me, Satan, to Peter. And then like, Peter, come on, let's get it right again. And he sent him out to do ministry. He sent him out two by two and they come back and they're like, Jesus, it didn't work. And Jesus is like, well, let me show you how to do it. And then he sends them back out. It's almost like they all were in process. Um, is that good news for you and for me? Man, I hope so. Don't you want to know that that's what, what following Jesus looks like? That you don't just spiritually come up out of the baptism waters and you've got to have it all together perfectly. But the rest of your life, you're going to have this process of learning, adjusting, learning more, absorbing, and we need to have the humility to do it. But then we also need to affirm the good that we see and send people back out in the work of the ministry and walk alongside them as we move forward. That's what church is supposed to look like. And I love what happens in verses 27 and 28. It says, and when, uh, when, um, when Apollos then wanted to go further in ministry, he wanted, wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him. And then they even wrote a letter to the disciples at the new city to welcome him. And when he arrived, what happens? He greatly helped those through, through, through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? This guy who had something good to offer but didn't have it all together. They brought him alongside. They retooled him, redirected, built him up. They sent him back out. They affirmed him. They even sent a letter saying, man, this is a good guy. He's growing. He's seeking. He's running after things. And immediately he goes back into the work and God blesses that through his grace and continues to spread the word. And you see the ministry flourish. That's really the last thing we see, uh, I think, in this passage. Number five is multiplication can become a movement. Uh, that when it goes from Paul to Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, then it goes from Priscilla and Aquila to Apollos, and then Apollos goes to a new city, and there's more people that through grace are saved, and you see how the ministry expands. It's gone from uh, Rome and Athens to Corinth, and from Corinth to Ephesus, and from Ephesus to Achaia, and it begins to move, create this movement of the grace of God that ripples throughout the world. Um, let me just throw a couple other. Um, Priscilla and Aquila become this, this kind of one of my favorite couples in all the scriptures. Uh, we see later in 2 Timothy, Paul says, greet Prissa. And he gives her kind of a nickname, Prisca and Aquila. He moves back to Rome. And then uh, 1 Corinthians 16, at the end, he says, the churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, uh, together with the church that meets in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. They're continuing to practice the ministry. They're continuing to develop, uh, to, to spread the movement of God's grace in the world. And, and they're moving the mission forward wherever it is that God puts them. And friends, this is what we're meant to do. When we grow stronger as disciples, the whole church gets built up and others are encouraged. When we are blessed, we become a blessing 
to other people. And so much so that Paul, near the very end of his life, so you fast forward years later and Paul's in kind of a house prison in Rome and near the end of his life, he's writing from that prison and not long before he'd be killed for his faith and he sends greeting to Priscilla and Aquila. They become lifelong friends of his. Uh, Romans 16 says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risk their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church that's in their house. Friends, is that not a beautiful picture of what the church is supposed to be? We don't really know when they risk their necks for Paul's life, but he makes it known. He calls them his fellow workers. He says, these are my friends. Give them a warm hello for me. Give them a a hug around the neck. And this married couple whose life had been interrupted in Rome and they'd been forced to start over completely in Corinth. Isn't it amazing that God took that interruption and used it to bring about something that Paul says, it's interesting, that it's not just I who thank them, but he notice he says, all the churches of the Gentiles were influenced by this one couple. They had an effect on everyone that, was, uh, that became a believer thereafter. Friends, they weren't pastors or preachers. These weren't apostles. These were small business owners that God used in his church to literally change the face of Christianity on the planet. And I believe he wants to use you like that as well. So friends, let me just end with this. How are you doing? Are you getting stronger? You checking out? You dealing with an interruption and you're just ready to throw in the towel? You realize that interruptions can become blessings? Facing a dark time? Something knocked you back and you feel like you're reeling a little bit? Do you realize that in God's grace, depression can become something that happens, deepens your faith, that gives you greater confidence that the Lord is with you and he stands by your side to strengthen you, even in the midst of hard times? Do you realize that delays can become opportunity? That when you're trained up and you're built up, that that actually leads you to a sense of calling to the mission to further the purposes and the people of God? And when we live that out, when it multiplies through our midst, that actually becomes a movement of God's grace. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would make us authentic disciples of Jesus who live for the glory of God and for the good of our world. It's in his name we pray. Amen.